plan for your life? Do you know where you want to go? Are you looking to be happier, healthier, and wealthier while having more fun every day? Meet our empowerment architect and goddess gardener, Cynthia Bryan, as she engages in energetic exchanges with success experts, bringing you research, innovations, strategies, and techniques to strengthen your life, business, and personal spaces. Be inspired, motivated, encouraged, and empowered. Lend us your ears right here on Star Style. Be the star you are. The party starts now. Well, hello, all you star stylers. Welcome to Star Style, Be the Star You Are. This is our informational playground, and we're brought to the airwaves under the auspices of Be the Star You Are charity. I am your host, and we are coming to you live, as we do every Wednesday from 4 to 5 p.m. Pacific, right here on the Voice America Network, and we are on the Empowerment Channel because we always strive to seed, stimulate, and support space for positive, meaningful conversations. The Miracle Moment for today is brought to you by Be The Star You Are Charity. Please visit BeTheStarYouAre.org, and that is from Ralph Waldo Emerson. Most of the shadows of this life are caused by our standing in our own sunshine. Think about it. Yes. So let's uh, let's just move into the sunshine and don't stand in any shadows at all. And before I get started on what we'll be doing today, I just wanted to let you know that if you want to go shopping online, give givingassistant.org forward slash be the star you are a shot. There are 3,300 stores, and they are all uh, offer you discounts as well as give money to the charity. So if you go to givingassistant.org, all you have to do is type in Be The Star You Are, and we can be the recipient of whatever they're going to give to the charity, and you can get your discount. I've just finished um, doing an hour interview with Giving Assistant to try to help their sites be even more interactive but it's a great way to support uh, the charity and get you know go shopping and buy whatever it is that you want so uh, check it out and see what you think givingassistant.org well today's show is going to be all about fire because we have really been experiencing some terrible fires in the last few years and we'll um, I'm going to be discussing that And then in our final segment, we'll do just a quick kind of recap about how to watch for baby animals uh, because it is springtime and there are young birds and rabbits and other new creatures are emerging. And so often, well-meaning humans make the mistake of thinking an unattended baby animal needs to be rescued, but maybe that good intention is going to end in tragedy. So... I will uh, give you some information on what to do if you find a uh, a baby anything um, this spring and how to just keep it protected. So we've talked a lot about the campfire. I gave you uh, firescaping uh, information on what you can do to be firewise in your own garden. And I want to give more information because that campfire, the blaze that just wiped out um, the town of Paradise this past November. It heralds something new for all of us. It's a state of affairs that the outgoing governor 
of California, Jerry Brown, actually characterized as the new normal. And then later, he changed it to the new abnormal because fires are becoming larger, costlier, and more frequent here in California and all of the West than ever before. And they're starting to burn all year round. Now, why is this happening? Well, the change is driven by a combination of factors, uh, with global warming being you know, chief among them. And according to the latest California climate change assessment that was issued in August of 2018, the average daily temperatures could increase by nearly 9 degrees Fahrenheit by the year 2100. Now, probably none of us listening to this radio show right now will be around in 2100, but our children will or grandchildren will. And as the mercury soars and the vegetation becomes drier, there are going to be larger and larger wildfires You know that will cover 25,000 acres or more, and they're expected to increase in frequency by 50%. When that terrible uh, firestorm hit um, the Lake County, where our family cabin was, which was back in 1997, it was considered one of the worst firestorms in U.S. history and the worst in California. And since that time, the fires have gotten extremely, extremely more catastrophic and covering more acres. And the trend appears to be playing out before our eyes because there are just doomsday images of fire tornadoes and towering smoke plumes. And this seems to be increasingly leading the news. So if you consider just the last two years alone, don't even go back, um, you know, 15 years or 10 years. In December of 2017, the Thomas Fire that was in Santa Barbara and Ventura counties claimed more than 280 thousand acres and over a thousand structures and at the time it ranked as the largest fire in modern California history and then seven months later the Mendocino complex fire smashed that record because it consumed half a million acres so before the campfire the most destructive uh, fire in the state was the 2017 Tubbs fire that consumed 5,000 structures and it left 22 people dead. Well, only fast forward a year later, paradise, and three times as many buildings burned. So they estimated that about 15, 16,000 buildings burned. 86 people were killed, making it both the most destructive and the deadliest fire in the state's history, and it was also the costliest natural disaster of 2018 in the entire world. So this scale is really, really astounding. I mean, with Paradise, we lost an entire town. That's something that hasn't happened since the 19th century. And as sad as it is, it's going to be happening more because there are just so many more towns throughout the West and especially in California, that are equally vulnerable. And that also includes many in the San Francisco Bay Area. And the most susceptible communities are those that are located in so-called wildland urban interfaces. They call it WUIs. And that's where human development and forests overlap. So people living in or near forested areas they underappreciate the threat. I mean, we think we're safe, but, you know, we're really, really not. 
So what are the causes behind this devastation? We can point to a number of factors, including fuel types, topography, and of course, the changing climate. Uh, For example, the winter rains that we typically expect you know, at a certain date, they were delayed this last this last year, and they were delayed by a few weeks. Well, a single storm at the usual time for the area would have reduced the number of potential ignition uh, points. But and even small shifts in timing and amount and and the type of precipitation, you know, how much rain falls and how much snow falls, it can have huge implications. But the rain and the snow were late in 2018, and we saw the um, catastrophic destruction that was caused. So a a similar dynamic played out with the Woolsey fire that was sparked on the same day as the campfire, and it led to the evacuation of nearly 300,000 people in Los Angeles and Ventura counties. So, you know, October has always been a really bad month here in California for fires and earthquakes, and it's a really windy month. Now, Joan Didion wrote a famous essay in 1968, and it was called Some Dreamers of the Golden Dream, and it was about life in the Southland, and she uh, said it is the month when the hills blaze up spontaneously, and it's it's really true. I mean, it's when it's like fires just catch in the month of October because of the wind. And so without any precipitation, November is a really terrible month. And even December this year was really bad. And if the quenching runnings come before the Santa Ana winds come, then perhaps that Woolsey fire wouldn't have happened. And, of course, the worst thing was is that the rains came after the fires and they caused terrible destruction as well because then there were mudslides that um, you'll remember that tore through Montecito in the wake of that enormous Thomas fire. So is this a new normal or a new abnormal as we are saying? What we're being told is that it's just a preview of more things that are going to come. We're going to experience some really bad um, natural disasters in the future. And this is what we're seeing now is just a fraction of the changes that are about to happen unless we can do something rather drastically. Now, back in the 1970s and 1980s, Cal Fire used to keep seasonal firefighters on the payroll for like four months. That was the duration of a typical fire season. But now, firefighters, seasonal firefighters, they can expect six or even nine month appointments. And sometimes people are working all year round. And so basically, there is no fire season anymore, at least in parts of the state, the fire season is year round. So um, one of the things that Governor Brown, uh, uh, former Governor Brown had said is that there's going to be firefighting at Christmas. So there's always a budget budget consciousness in every state, and we have to remember that fires come at a very, very high price. In 2017, Cal Fire's fire suppression budget ran to nearly half a billion dollars. And just a month into physical year 2018, the state had already spent a quarter of its firefighting allotment And then by September, normally the end of the fire season, the budget was depleted 
and the agency required another $234 million to continue operating. So fires are really, really uh, bad, and they're ubiquitous, especially here in California. Now, do we think that California's forests have been mismanaged? Well, decades of overzealous fire suppression and excessive clear-cutting followed by excessive tree planting has resulted in millions of acres of overstocked forests. And what that means is that there's just too many trees cramped into too little spaces. Now, again, going back to the 70s and 80s, what the Forest Service did then, that was the agency that focuses, by the way, the Forest Service on maximizing timber harvest. What used to happen is fire crews would um, spend the autumn months burning slash in immense clear-cut units that had been logged in the spring and summer. And then the trees taken were typically these old-growth ponderosa pine and Douglas fir or other conifers that had taken centuries to mature. So after burning, the units were quickly replanted with Douglas fir seedlings, and those were bred for rapid growth. Well, by doing this, the Forest Service actually transformed healthy, diverse forests into vast, overcrowded tree plantations that now function as gigantic fuel reservoirs. And when they ignite, they just explode. They just burn, you know, like like it was explosives that were thrown on them. And that's exactly what happened in the Rim Fire which was California's fifth largest that sparked in August 2013. And it burned for more than a full year in the Stanislaus National Forest and even parts of Yosemite National Park. And much of the heaviest fuel loads in the Rim Fire were located on old logging units that had become overgrown with thickets of relatively young trees and it was compounded by vast stands of dead trees killed by drought and bark beetles there's an estimated 130 million 130 million i got to repeat it one more time 130 million dead trees just in the sierra nevadas alone and the result was a fire of unusual intensity and one that burned everything down to the mineral earth, and that resulted in severe long-term environmental damage in large swaths of the Stanislaus. Yosemite fared a bit better because um, they had aggressively been doing some fuel reduction, and the National Park Service had done that. And that was, um, they included tree thinning and controlled burns um, to clear the, the, um, all the debris from the forest floor. So that was sort of like, you know, um, being a realistic raking that they were doing. And, you know, talking about uh, control burns, it, it's very interesting to me because control burns, is actually an ancient technique. Uh, the indigenous people in California used fire to manage forests for centuries and perhaps millennium. In modern California, however, fighting fires has become the focus that uh, might be wrong because what they're doing, the policy of fire suppression, is a central component that is sustaining the forest. It's um, 
it, the, what it's doing is it's increasing the fires that happen in the forest because the fire is actually a central component of forests. It's just like rain. You wouldn't have, you wouldn't take away the rain from the forest and we can't really take away the fire. So in the past, it was always controlled burnings. When I was a kid and my dad was a captain in the volunteer fire department, in the summer, it was like at least once a week throughout our uh, valley, which had several ranches on it, all the different volunteer firefighters and their families would get together for what was called a control burn. And the chief would decide what area needed to be burned, and a fire would be lit as all the different firefighters watched it very carefully. And, um, and that way, all the undergrowth, all the wood... You know, all the stuff that could actually explode into a major fire was burned. And that really saved, it saved us from having any major fires. And then, of course, for us, all the fun stuff was at the very end of the fire. We would usually do it in, a, in the early evening. Then we would go back to the firehouse and we would have a, um, a buffet. <laughs> all the all the different families would um, would bring food, and we would just have like a potluck supper, and the kids would get to play, and we really we loved that. But control burns were part of it. So as that rim fire story suggests, um, more control burning is actually needed. And according to recent state study, only two hundred and sixty one thousand acres of California forest get treated annually, and even doubling that figure wouldn't do very much to, con- to maintain the historic rates of burning. So to actually reduce destruction by wildfires, we have to ratchet up our fuel reduction considerably. And, of course, that's going to cost money. Well, we're going to talk more about fires when we come back from break. You're listening to Cynthia Bryan. This is Star Style. Be the star you are, coming to you live on the Voice America Network. This is the Empowerment Channel. And today's show is always uh, talking about fires, fire suppression, and we will talk about what we personally can do to protect ourselves from wildfires. Don't go away. Stay with me and stay tuned. Be the star you are. Follow us on Twitter for more great ideas at Voice America Empowerment. Are you seeking a dynamo speaker for your meeting, conference, or organization? Internationally recognized keynote speaker and New York Times bestselling author and lifestyle coach, Cynthia Bryan, will bring her energetic expertise, passionate professionalism, and ebullient personality to your event. Hailed as an expert in lifestyle, women's issues, self-help, personal balance, leadership, media, gardening, and interior design topics, Cynthia Bryan is a popular empowerment keynote speaker around the world. Lecturing to audiences of 100 to 5,000. For rates and bookings, call 925-377-STAR. 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 And visit www.cynthiabryan.com. When you want the best, book Cynthia Bryan. www.cynthiabryan.com. This business of show business is calling out to me. 
Get started acting or modeling with a consultation from media coach extraordinaire Cynthia Bryant, who has guided entertainment careers for over two decades. Call 925-377-STAR or visit www.cynthiabryan.com. Pick up a copy of her award-winning book, The Business of Show Business, and start living your dreams today. Call 925-377-STAR. 925-377-STAR. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. It's power time on Star Style. Be the star you are with your passion, purpose, and possibility producer, Cynthia Bryan. Now, back to the power party. This business of show. We're back, and we're actually not talking show business today. We are talking fires. I'm Cynthia Bryan. This is Star Style, Be the Star You Are. I was talking with Josh, my engineer, off uh, during the break here, and he was talking about control burns in Arizona and how important they were when he was growing up and keeping the cities safe and, and keeping the forest safe. And, you know, I don't know why we're not doing control burns as we should anymore, but now I think there's going to be a really big push for that because costs of fuel treatment can vary from a few hundred to several thousand dollars per acre, depending on terrain, accessibility, and other factors. Now, in Oregon's Deschutes National Forest, which has a long history of prescription burning, which is control burning, costs typically run about $250 an acre. Now, if you use that as a rough guide, it would cost nearly $5 billion to treat um, the state's 19 million acres, and that would be once. Now, since trees and undergrowth brush grow back, once isn't enough, so the, the effort has to be ongoing. Mechanical thinning, which is chainsaws, is even more costly than prescribed burning, and it's also very contentious. It's always going to be a complex and nuanced discussion. I mean, everybody loves trees, right? We all love trees, but we can't just hug trees because at a certain point, you've got to decide that a closed canopy forest isn't really a good idea for a residential neighborhood. And, you know, we have to be judicious because what about logging? Logging can make a landscape more resilient while reducing post-fire erosion and risks to power lines. So we have to look at all the options. Now, mechanical thinning is strictly a cost issue. So we need to develop benefits such as the utilization of biomass, that is, turning wood from thinning, perhaps, into electricity. Now, there is a push for thinning and fuel reduction, but they often get really misinterpreted, especially on the political level, where it is seen, favorably or not, as a call for more clear-cutting. Kristen Sheave, who is a senior scientist and a fire ecologist with Save the Redwoods League, and, um, you know, that's, that's... you know what the redwoods are they're only in this certain part of the state cautions that while timber harvests done well in certain places can have a role in solution that doesn't mean we should just open vast areas to logging i mean and of course that makes sense for starters you know we have large trees the large trees are not the ones that are causing our fuel problems it's really the small ones the small diameter trees they create the fuel continuity and they're the ones that need to be dealt with you can remove those with mechanical thinning but in many areas neither logging nor mechanical thinning is practiced because of inaccessibility which brings us back to fire 
as the best tool for large-scale fuel reduction. That brings us back to that control burn, right? So while preventing fire with fire may sound kind of perverse, especially given the effects of smoke on air quality, we have to stress that this is not an either-or proposition. Forests are going to burn. All forests are going to burn. It's just a matter of when. And fire suppression has only worsened the problem because what fire suppression is doing, it's allowing fuels to accumulate. So what we've basically done is banked a lot of smoke on the landscape. And in one way or another, it's going to be spent. So it can be released slowly or it can be released released, uh, catastrophically. So that's what happened with uh, Paradise, for example. Uh, When Paradise burned, the air quality in Northern California was more hazardous than Beijing's or New Delhi. And I'll tell you, I was recently in New Delhi and I had to wear a mask. I couldn't even breathe. And when Paradise happened, it looked like it was, and I'm in the San Francisco Bay Area, and so Paradise is quite a ways away, several hours away. However, San Francisco area, it looked like nighttime almost. It really, you know, looked like dusk, and the sunset was a red fireball, and the smoke was so thick that you had to wear a mask. You, you, you just, you couldn't breathe, and that was because of that fire that was so far away. So uh, we really, really should let fires burn in the late fall. And we lose opportunities for significant fuel reduction when we put them out at those times. So an area that might burn really terribly in August, it might be okay to burn in November. We have to uh, insist, I think, that smoke is going to be a natural feature of our life now. Yeah, because our forests are, they're fire adapted. And that means that many native trees require low level fire to thrive. And in fact, there are a lot of plants that require fire to thrive. And there are a lot of plants that the seeds don't even, um, they don't, they don't become seedlings until fire has gone through. So the, the state's air, and I'm talking about any place that's burning in the, any place, but especially here in California or the West, it was smoky long before the European settlers arrived because fires were common. And they happened from late spring through the autumn because of lightning strikes and also because of that deliberate ignition by indigenous people that I was saying uh, earlier when they were going to clear brush and they did it also to encourage the growth of food plants and to allow for easier hunting so there's a reason for controlled you know controlled burns and there um there are research that has been done that analyzed pre-columbian wildfires in california and that research estimates that 4.5 million acres of burned of california burned annually now by comparison in 2007 wildfires burned just 1.5 million acres in California. So the pre-settlement fires would have been much lower intensity precisely because fire regularly scoured the landscape. So they burned through forests. They were characterized by large, well-spaced trees with scant understories. So um, that just gives you a little bit of background about the fires. Now, 
These days, state wildfire crews are trained to protect homes and structures as well as contain forest fires. But homeowners cannot just rely on firefighters to save them. It is the responsibility of all homeowners to take sensible precautions. And when I say homeowners, I mean anyone who lives in a home or an apartment, even if you're renting, it's up to you. For decades, CAL FIRE has emphasized the necessity of maintaining defensible space around structures in wildland areas. And that would mean the removal of trees, brush, high grass around homes. And not long ago, 30 feet of defensible space was considered adequate. But in 2008, the agency updated its fire code and it added fire-resistant standards for windows, decks, and roofs in these wildlife urban areas uh, to a standard of 100 feet of dispensable space around structures. Now, Obviously, it's safe to say that very few homes or apartments currently meet those standards. It's pretty hard to have 100 feet of defensible space around a structure, but that is really what's necessary in order to be safe. Now, when miles of countryside suddenly explode into flames, talk of standards and solutions are just become mute because all anybody's going to do if a fire uh, starts is you want to flee but driving is might not be possible just think about paradise where cars were abandoned on the roadside in the chaos of evacuation people died in their cars people died trying to flee so it's clear that there was little real chance of escape for anyone that was caught in the blowtorch to go back to the firestorm That happened with my sister and brother-in-law and the 90 firefighters and 16 other civilians back in 1997, which at that time was considered one of the worst firestorms in U.S. history. The fire was going so fast that it there was no way anyone could outrun it. And it was like a small atomic bomb that was the power of it. So now imagine what it is today. So short of some miraculous reversal of global warming through, say, atmospheric carbon removal on, I don't know, an epic scale, but that hasn't been developed yet. There's not technology for that. California and the Intermountain West are going to endure more fires like the ones that destroyed paradise. And the best that we can do is take steps to adapt and to prepare for the worst. So we have to bolster our emergency notification systems and we have to really be prepared. So what can we do? Let me just give you a, a few tips. Climate change is a primary driver in increased wildfire incidents and severity. No matter what our dear president says that there's no such thing as climate change, it is happening. Global warming is happening. And so any effective response has to be global in scope. And that's not to say that nothing can be done locally and regionally to mitigate the fire risk. However, it's gonna be up to each individual to take steps to protect yourself. So what can you do? First of all, reduce fuels. Prescribed fire is the tool of choice where homes are not at direct risk, you know, and that would be uh, control burns, mechanical thinning, you know, chainsaws, 
Um, that's best for wildland and urban interface zones where developments and wildlands meet. And then let it burn. The state's wildland ecologies are fire adapted, meaning that the native flora tolerates fire and actually needs it to thrive. So there are times and places where fires must be fought aggressively, especially when homes and people's lives are in danger. But on public lands during the cooler, moister periods, perhaps we should just let nature take its course because wildfire at the right time could prevent wildfires at the wrong time. And as a culture, we have to get used to smoke. Burning is going to result in smoke. And it's probably irritating. It may be inconvenient. But we're either going to have to have some tolerable levels of smoke for specific minimal periods, or we're going to endure those dangerous um, areas of smoke settling over the lands for weeks or months, like what happened with Paradise. And we have to keep at it. Fuel reduction is an ongoing process. It's kind of like gardening. It never ends. Dead wood must be burned or removed, and trees need to be thinned every few years. And ultimately, surviving trees become large, and they become well-spaced. And then they'll, be, they'll produce stands that are more resistant to fire. And wildfires that do burn in forests will be low in intensity and largely beneficial and they'll consume the remaining dead wood, and they'll return nutrients to the soil, and then they will also kill destructive insects. And we always have to we have to learn to manage the uh, wildland uh, wildland um, urban interface. Fireproofing our forests and addressing climate change is going to take decades, but we can moderate the growth of the wildland urban interface in a much shorter time because what it requires is political will. We have to get our cities, our counties, our state officials coordinated with some regional plans and some local zoning to address the wildland urban interspace sprawl And in the wake of destructive fires into this area, we have to take measures to restrict or at least readjust the redevelopment. And people who want to live up close to the forest, they just need to know that they're going to have to uh, pay some high insurance premiums if they can get insurance at all. For example, going back to the fires in, um, in Lake County, So uh, the cabin was not destroyed in that 1997 fire. However, in the October fire that happened in that huge Mendocino forest, uh, half of that whole area was destroyed, the buildings. There was still the safety area, but the fire came in from the creek and it downed some trees and the trees landed on buildings and everything caught on fire. And the result is this, is that Now, anybody that has a a home or a cabin or anything in the middle of the forest, they can no longer get homeowner's insurance. So whatever you build, just know that every few years it may burn and you're going to have to replace it and that's going to be at your own cost. So that's uh, kind of scary. So we have to also practice self-defense. Suburban And rural residents have been hammered with the concept of defensible space for years. But 
you know what? I don't know if anybody's listening. The message still hasn't gotten through. Homes that have been cleared of brush and other highly flammable fuels to a radius of 100 feet as stipulated by that 2008 CAL FIRE rule for new houses remain the exception rather than the rule in most wildfire urban interfaces. And what's very interesting in the campfire, that was the Paradise Fire, the homes that did conform to that updated 100 feet of defensible space, they survived the flames. So it obviously makes sense and it obviously works. Now, uh, to bury those lines, this is probably another really uh, big thing. Overhead power lines can cause wildfires, particularly during periods of high winds. And transmission lines for all new WI developments should be buried. Likewise, utilities need to initiate a long-term program to bury lines for existing developments in or near wildline urban interface areas. And it's really costly, but so are catastrophic fires. And if you've been reading the news, those people in Northern California who are served by Pacific Gas and Electric, PG&E, PG&E has filed for bankruptcy because it was PG&E that caused uh, their power lines, caused a few of these recent catastrophic fires. And there are hundreds and hundreds of lawsuits. But this, this horrible thing about this, and it makes me so angry, is that while PG&E is responsible, they get to file bankruptcy. And then the people that are going to end up paying are the PG&E customers. And this happened back in the oh, the early 2000s when PG&E filed Chapter 11. And um, when they did, they gave their senior executives millions of dollars of bonuses. I think their president got like $10 million one year and, I don't know, $8 million the next year. And their reasoning was we have to keep our good people which I think really infuriated PG&E customers who now had their bills increased by an exorbitant amount. And obviously those employees were not good employees because they got them into Chapter 11 in the first place. So uh, I am not a fan of the customers have to carry this burden. I think that they have to carry the burden. And the final thing you can do is to volunteer. Now, in many suburban and rural areas, volunteer fire departments like the one I grew up with are the first line of defense against wildfires. And such agencies are really finding it difficult to find new recruits and incentives, including on-the-job experience to compensate for a lack of formal training, is provided to encourage people to volunteer. So if you're in an area where there is a volunteer fire department, think about volunteering. I think you'll get a lot of... Um, a benefit out of it and you'll be doing a good thing and the skills you learn will help you throughout your life well that is our um our bit on fire prevention and what we need to do i am cynthia bryan you're listening to star style be the star you are we're coming to you live on the voice america network for more information about uh, Cynthia Bryan, visit CynthiaBryan.com. And while you're there, check out our books because I do write about fires in my books as well. CynthiaBryan.com forward slash books. Don't go away. We'll be back in a bit. We're going to talk about baby animals. Be the star you are. 
Change your world. Change your life. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com Business Bites. Here's Cynthia Bryan. How do you motivate people to be leaders? Here are three tips. Meaning. People want to be part of something useful, valuable, and bigger than themselves. Help people see how what they do makes a difference for others, for the community, the world, or whatever. And make sure people can see the mission of the organization and how they can fit into it. Expectations. People want to know what is expected of them and what behaviors are valued. When people know what is really expected, they work with less stress and higher confidence and productivity. And targets. People are naturally competitive. I mean, if only with themselves. So help them compete by giving them or helping them create goals. Whether the work is highly creative or more mundane and repetitive, goals drive satisfaction and fun. Remember, you are the star of your own production. Turn your passions into profits. I'm Cynthia Bryan with another business bite from Star Style. For more information, visit CynthiaBryan.com. That's CynthiaBryan.com. The annual cost of illiteracy to American taxpayers is over $225 billion. Help increase literacy, reduce violence, and improve positive media messages by making a tax-deductible contribution to Be The Star You Are charity. A top-rated nonprofit, Be The Star You Are promotes positive role models, produces positive radio broadcasts, and donates positive books to empower women, families, and youth. Be a power partner and join our galaxy of stars. Visit our website at bethestarur.org to make a tax-deductible donation using PayPal or send checks to P.O. Box 376, 376, Moraga, California, 94556. BeTheStarYouAre.org Dare to Care You are the star Follow us on Twitter for more great ideas at Voice America Empowerment It's power time on Star Style Be the star you are with your passion, purpose, and possibility producer Cynthia Bryant now, back to the power party. Well, we are back. Thank you so much for staying with us. I hope that this this um, episode on fires, fire prevention, and just what's happening with the global warming and what we can do about it is helpful to everyone. And make sure if you missed last week's episode when we talked about um, firewise and firescaping, that you do go to the website um, at Voice America, at, go to Star Style, Be the Star You Are, and look at that show, or just go to CynthiaBryan.com and uh, you can find the uh, firescaping because there's it's really important as if we have a home with a garden or any kind of landscape that we protect ourselves in our landscape as well as our homes. The other thing that before I talk about babies in spring that has really been bugging me lately, and you might notice that I am no longer giving a phone number for you to call, 
if you wanted to book an appointment or anything with me because I no longer answer my phone. And I just want to let you know the reason for that is all of the spam, I don't know what they are, crazy calls that are coming from all over the world, literally, that are trying to be disguised as someone, you know, that is close by using an area code that is um, a Northern California area code or a California area code or an American area code. And then it turns out to be, you know, a, a scam, spam. And I don't have time to answer. So in case you are trying to reach me by phone, know that you can call, but you'll have to leave a message with your phone number and you will get a call back. But you will not get me on the phone when you call. You will, it'll go straight to voicemail. That is my new pledge, is I figure that if somebody really wants to talk to me, they will leave a message. Otherwise, always shoot me an email. I do respond to emails, although all spam emails go into the junk file. It is, it's just getting a little bit too crazy, and I... Um, I really just, I don't like what's going on out there. And I and if I didn't have Star Style and Be The Star You Are, I probably would be a ghost online, <laughs> just as Josh says that he is, because it's just, it's just too crazy. There's just too many weird things happening. But now to happier things. This isn't about fires. This is about rescuing baby animals, because it is springtime now, and there are young birds and rabbits and you know, there's just a lot of babies being born. And what happens very often is well-meaning humans make the mistake of thinking an unattended baby animal needs to be rescued. But that good intention often ends in tragedy. And um, there, are, there have been actually crazy cases, which if I have time, I might share one with you. But um, that have literally led to um, imprisonment and other things because of animals getting injured. So let me tell you what you have to do. For many wildlife species, it's really normal for mothers to leave their young for large chunks of the day while they go out and gather food. Rabbits and deer, for example, leave their babies alone. They hide them in the underbrush, which is a strategy to protect the young from predators while the parent is uh, go foraging. And then if mom returns and the baby is gone, she may eventually leave the area and then it would make it very difficult for her to have a family reunion or to reunite with the baby. And the same thing happens with young birds. So if you discover a young bird on the ground, it might be fine. Uh, many fledglings attempt to fly before their wings can handle that task. So what happens is they just plop down to earth. Now, though these fledglings may spend several days on the ground before they're able to fly, parents continue to bring them food. So just you should just leave them alone. Now, on the other hand, if there, you find a newly hatched uh, nestling that doesn't have any feathers. Now, that means, you know, they're just like a bald baby, a bald little bird. Now, sometimes these little bald birds fall out of a nest prematurely, and then that makes them much more vulnerable. If you know where their nest is and it's reachable overhead, what you want to do is gently pick up these grounded chicks and 
put them back in the nest. It is a myth that birds or squirrels um, will reject their young if they smell a human's touch. Though it is a uh, it is persistent, uh, especially as a persistent myth, especially with birds. But you know, don't worry about it. So, and, and if you want, you could put on. If you see a bird, you could put on like some surgical gloves or plastic gloves so that there won't be a scent and gently put the bird back in the nest. So that's something that could be done. Now, when it comes to those fledglings that you find on the ground, they're the ones that have feathers and they're hopping around. You can keep an eye on them, and, but don't touch them. Because what you'll probably see is you'll see that the mom will be sitting on a fence or the mom will be in a tree. And you'll see her swoop down and bring food to the baby. Now, if you think that that fledgling is endangered because you see, um, you know, owls that or a raptor or something that might be on the prowl or a cat, now that might take some intervening. But, but other than that, just leave them alone. But, you know, we are humans, and as humans, pretty much we can't resist intervening, and it's no surprise that the rescue problem has just kind of been uh, expanding during the baby season. Last year at the Wildlife Center in Virginia, for example, the number of calls from people concerned about wildlife hit 1,337 in June compared to just 459 in September. So while some animals definitely did need care, and the ones that need care are the ones that have been orphaned, hit by cars, attacked by cats or dogs, or they've had their nests destroyed. Almost 40% of the calls in June required absolutely no intervention. So uh, according to, uh, to the wildlife centers, half of roughly 1,150 baby animals that were brought to the center that spring did not need medical attention and they should have just been left alone. That's quite a few little babies. Now, how can you help safely? On occasion, intervention does have a happy ending, but it often depends on how quickly returning the, the young to their parents that you can do it. So, um, for example, one there was a wildlife center in Maryland and somebody brought in five baby southern flying squirrels that a neighbor had evicted from a bluebird nesting box where the animals had been born and that left them on the ground. So the rescuer saw them and brought them to this wildlife center where the staff fed them because they were cold and dehydrated and kept them warm overnight in a warm box. And then the next day they moved the box to a spot under the bluebird house where the squirrels had been found originally. And then pretty soon the mother picked up her babies one by one and she moved them to another nest. So that was kind of a very cool ending. So we have to educate people about the best course of action when finding baby wildlife because it really is critical. So before doing anything, try to assess if there's a problem. If an animal is not clearly injured or orphaned and if a grounded bird has its flight feathers, leave it alone because the mother might simply be hunting for food. If an animal has visible injuries or you saw the mother killed, call a licensed wildlife rehabilitator and get professional advice on whether to touch or move the baby. If you do move an animal, wear gloves to minimize the risk of disease or injury to you or the animal. 
And then place the animal in a well-ventilated box where it's not too cold, not too hot, and keep it away from children and pets till you can take it to a wildlife rescue professional. And don't feed a baby animal without guidance because the wrong food, like baby formula or pet food, might do more harm than good. And to survive, animals need to get back to the wild as soon as possible, or they need not to leave it in the first place. So it might be kind of hard for us, but sometimes leaving a baby alone gives it the best chance of growing up to have babies on its own so that's our show on star style be the star you are today fire and baby animals so i thank you very much for staying with me every wednesday 4 to 5 p.m pacific or listening on the icon on the archives or at itunes my name is cynthia bryan and i really like bringing you some advice and uh, being like your personal growth success coach. I'd like you to change your life and, and open your mind and make your dreams come true. For more information about Be The Star You Are charity, and please visit our website and make a donation. I have a goal in my mind, and I'm praying for it every day, and only you can make it possible. Be the star you are org. Just click on Donate and help help all of our dreams come true. Also, pick up copies of the eight books that I've written, and all the money will go to the charity. So that's a double win for you. And you can find those at CynthiaBryan.com. My aim is always to encourage, inspire, inform, amuse, and motivate. I want you to see beyond your physical being. Know that you already are the star you dreamed of becoming. So cherish the past, dream of the future, but celebrate every moment of your life. And read a book. This week, it's like a garden in your pocket, and I hope that you'll pick up Growing with the Goddess Gardener or Be the Star You Are, Millennials to Boomers, my two newest books that hit the bookshelves this past year. So imagine your dreams as if they already exist, speak as if they already exist, act as if they already exist, and then until next week, when we play again here on the Star Style Playground, remember, love always wins, kindness always prevails. And smiles will keep us happy. I am Cynthia Bryan. This is Star Style. I thank you and encourage you to be the star you are. Be your unapologetically authentic self. Have a wonderful week. Dream, create, inspire, make a difference. And be here next Wednesday, 4 to 5 p.m. Pacific. Thanks for joining me. Be the star you the star you are, be the star you are, you are the star. It's been a pleasure bringing you our life-changing program, Star Style, Be the Star You Are. We have you on our radar as it's our goal to inspire, inform, entertain, and motivate you to be the star you were born to be. For more information, visit StarStyleRadio.com. And to make a donation to the charity, go to BeTheStarYouAre.org. Ignite the flame that burns brightly within. Take charge of your life and coach yourself to success with our dynamic host and empowerment architect, Cynthia Bryan. Every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time, right here on the Voice America Empowerment Channel for another serving of champagne for the spirit and a power boost to live with star style. Until we celebrate together next week, be the star you are.